Okay, uh, welcome everyone. I'm gonna just tread water for a minute. This is Paul Balberding uh, uh, to let people come into the Zoom room. Um, we have, I think, nearly 350 signed up for today. Um, that's great. Uh, and uh, we look forward to, uh, to the dialogue. Um, well, as we start, uh, let me just mention that we, uh, again, are, are uh, hosted by the International Antiviral Society USA, ISUSA, uh, Donna Jacobson, the CEO, and uh, we have uh, Jose Francisco, who is the, the staff person who has been amazingly great at putting these dialogues together. Uh, as always, we have several uh, discussants, uh, but we rely uh, also very much on the questions that come in from the audience, uh, either ones that we have heard about since our last dialogue, we keep our ears open, or uh, ones that we see coming into the Q&A. As always, um, uh, send in your uh, Q&A questions. I'll try to watch for those, uh, and we'll get to as many as possible, no promises. Uh, and I'll try not to shout out to too many of my friends that uh, that uh, that come into this uh, program, uh, it's always good to, to know that, you know, some really great people are listening in, and uh, I'm sure that's, uh, that's always the case. So let me start by uh, just introducing briefly, in the order that I see them on my screen, uh, the three discussants today. Uh, we're back to uh, a group that has been here before. Uh, several um, of them are well-known, uh, Peter Chin Hong from UCSF, Bonnie Maldonado uh, from Stanford have been uh, diligent participants, and Mike Sag from UAB has been great at coming in when uh, our, our third triumvirate, uh, Carlos Del Rio from Emory, uh, is unable to attend, and Mike, thanks a lot, as always, for, uh, for stepping in. Um, let's get started. Let me, uh, I've, I've mentioned who you are, but tell me a little bit, tell the audience a little bit about uh, your backgrounds. Peter, Bonnie, and then Mike, let's go in that order. Peter. Uh, you're muted, I believe. Sorry about that elementary <laughs> Zoom uh, issue. Uh, so hello everybody. Yeah, you're new to this platform, I think, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm uh, Peter Chin Hong, uh, professor of medicine at UCSF, and um, throughout COVID, uh, helped get uh, some of the clinical trials run through UCSF and um, during, took care of patients and during MPOX, uh, we've been uh, also uh, dealing with uh, therapeutics and trying to maintain as much equity as possible. So that's been my, and then a lot of communication at all levels because I, I love teaching after all. Yeah, yeah. And you're looking very Trinidadian today, uh, Peter. I love the shirt. Uh, yeah. So Bonnie, uh, tell us about yourself. Yeah, good morning and good afternoon to everybody. I'm Bonnie Maldonado and I'm professor of global health and infectious diseases at Stanford University School of Medicine. I'm a pediatric infectious disease epidemiologist and with an emphasis on global child health and vaccinations. So do a lot of work around real world effectiveness of vaccines and other interventions such as prevention of mother to child transmission of HIV in Sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America. Uh, more recently, I was the chair of the American Academy of Pediatrics Committee on Infectious Diseases. And of, like everyone else here, just uh, most of my life has been consumed by COVID antiviral therapy, clinical trials, pediatric vaccine trials, and other epidemiologic tracking of behavioral and modifiable behaviors and uh, risk for infection. Thanks. Great, great. Uh, and as always, we're gonna wander around various viral uh, landscapes today and the, the panelists are all very, very, uh, very able to do that. Uh, we'll certainly do COVID, monkeypox and, or mpox and others. Uh, Mike, pulling yeah. up the so, yeah, spot, yeah. Yeah, I'm from UAB in Birmingham. I'm a professor of medicine and infectious diseases. Uh, did most of my work in HIV, but like everybody, seemingly in ID, a lot of work now in COVID and uh, in embracing monkeypox and trying to get a handle on that. Also, worked in global health as well. Super, super, super. Um, so. Um, let, let's get started. Um, I think COVID is the kind of the common denominator for a lot of these discussions. Uh, since our last uh, uh, 
chat a few weeks ago. Uh, we have the new bivalent uh, vaccine. Um, I'm hearing questions uh, about, about that. Uh, when should I get it? Um, who's really most in need of that? Uh, how long after I've had uh, COVID illness uh, should I uh, delay starting the uh, considering the vaccine? So let's jump into the the new vaccine. And um, Peter, do you want to start uh, uh, talking about this and giving us some answers? You're muted, I think. So just to get everybody on the same page, uh, the new formulation of the vaccine is uh, half the the ancestral strain from Wuhan and half a combination uh, of BA4 and BA5, which is really the same thing because the outside uh, of the, I always use my little COVID plushie, the outside spike protein configuration looks the same in BA4 and BA5, so it's the same formula. Um, the idea is that, um, you know, we are doing a spectacular job of prevention of severe disease, hospitalization, and death with the current vaccines, but we want to get a little bit extra, and that extra is really uh, also helping to prevent people from getting infected, particularly those who have been vaccinated with these new circulating strains. Um, there is less clinical data with this new booster. There's clinical data for the BA1 bivalent booster, which the UK and other European countries have embraced because it was ready earlier off the line. Um, but again, we don't think it will perform worse. We just want to make sure people have realistic expectations about how much more bang for the buck you're going to get with this new bivalent vaccine. Pretty much the same safety profile. We don't expect anything different uh, and time will tell. So I'll, I'll leave that for the sort of groundwork. Well, so I want to add a couple of things. First of all, I think all of you heard that the World Health Organization yesterday said that we are seeing the end of the pandemic. And that's great news. Um, we also want to know that the African CDC said not in Africa, where only 22% of people are vaccinated. So, um, and because uh, fall season is coming around here in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, we may see uh, increases in cases uh, just because of, you know, the usual respiratory uh, risk factors during the winter time. Um, but the other thing finally is that this is the policy that we tend to use for flu vaccines. So we don't have a lot of, if any, clinical data on these vaccines every year. We use the same platform and then we move forward. So we expect that this would be the same for the current uh, uh, bivalence. And then finally, because um, most people got their boosters already some time ago, we know that um, you, you, the, you know, if you wait three months or more, um, you should get a decent boost um, in your protective Im immune responses um, at this point, going into the fall season, fall and winter season. Yeah, I think the uh, big thing with the bivalent, of course, is that it gets the BA5. And maybe one of the reasons why the WHO's made the recommendations as they have is because um, we aren't seeing emergence of a brand new variant that's kind of got our attention for the moment. So I think we can, you know, sort of float a little bit right now, feel a little better, but we're all look, always looking over our shoulder because it's when those new variants come that our immunity just often isn't prepared and you see these new spikes in cases. Think back to Delta in the summer of 21 and then Omicron. We're still looking at mostly BA5 right now. And unless you guys have heard, I haven't heard of, of any blips on the radar. Like It's like watching for hurricanes out of the coast of Africa um, and it's that time of year for that, but so far we aren't seeing the variants. So I think the immunity can uh, take hold for a while. Mike, let me just jump in and, and ask. I've, I've, I've wondered this. Uh, so um, let's say we've gotten our, our, our bivalent booster. Um, okay, we're, we're, we're good for BA4 or 5. Is there any guess uh, about where the virus would mutate next and whether... Uh, whether this bivalent booster might be better uh, than the ancestral strain uh, for the next variant to emerge, or is that just too out, out of here to, to guess? I think we can say for sure that this new bivalent uh, vaccine is really good for BA5, and that's the one that's present, and that's why it's a great idea to get a booster. Uh, the CDC, by the way, has a wonderful little uh, algorithm. You can just go to the site. General public can do it, too. 
put in when you've, uh, what vaccines you've had, whether you're immunocompromised or age, and it tells you more or less, takes you through when you should get your vaccine. So that's a real help. And it's one of the more common questions I get. But Paul, your question's a great question, but uh, to be honest, if, if I think any of the three of us gave you an answer, we'd really just be guessing. We'd be guessing. We'd we, be guessing. Uh, you know, good example as we had, I mean, Omicron, well, Delta took us by surprise. Omicron also took us by surprise. And we don't, we still don't know really where these came from or how, and, and, you know, this is true for pandemic flu as well. They, those just come out of left field. So be hard to know. So let's let's do a little poll here. How many of us have gotten our booster with a bivalent? Not yet. Not Just yet. Me. Okay, next good. week. Yeah. Next, next think, week. Don't misinterpret that. It's not that I'm afraid no, of. I'm no, no. another booster. Back I'm waiting. I'm waiting for our Oc Health Clinic to set up the booster <laughs> uh, and the flu booster at the same time, so I can do it all at one time. Right. My my local uh, Safeway was very accommodating. Um, I decided to get the flu at the same vaccine at the same time. Um, was I smart or saved myself ten minutes? Uh, or uh, would you advise? People separating those two. Is there is there uh, any answer to that? Let's start with Peter. What do you think? No, I think you get it when it's convenient. You might forget about getting it if you wait too long. I think the thinking if, if you are sitting down Thanksgiving dinner and you still haven't gotten it, uh, it's probably not great, uh, but still always get it if you can. So the sweet spot, people say October, but again, flu season in in Australia was very atypical this year, came early, hit hard. Um, our flu season last year wasn't big overall, but it lasted much longer till May. So I guess you can't game the system too much. The important thing is when it's convenient, like with Paul yeah, and Safeway, yeah. just get it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so this is a question that came up uh, really literally yesterday. I was having lunch with a, with a friend in, in DC who uh, is now two weeks post COVID. She, her whole family got, got sick. Uh, Mike, they were driving up back from um, Alabama to, uh, to Virginia um, and got sick in the car as you did going to Alabama a couple of years ago. Um, how long after her illness? She said, should I, you know, should I wait uh, to get the, the booster? I've only, I've only been two weeks uh, post recovery. What's the what's the answer to that? The CDC recommends uh, getting it fairly soon after the infection. Like I think they say two months. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, and you guys can shoot this down. But to me, getting the infection is sort of like getting a booster. So your immune system and you would and it would be BA five at this point. It would right? be BA five. So yeah. I, I've been telling people three to four months after their infection mm -hmm. as a rule, especially yeah. if they're over the age of sixty five. I don't. Know, what are you guys doing? Yeah, two to three months. Three months is ideal, I think. Some people get nervous and can't wait. Um, there are data now that just came out looking at about uh, several hundred thousand people and looking at the um, uh, effectiveness of vaccination, vaccination plus booster versus unvaccinated and risk of hospitalizations again. And this is a more recent analysis and did show there was a, a huge increase. I think it was a, a, almost a hundredfold increase in hospitalizations uh, among unvaccinated, not surprising, but the, no, I'm sorry, it was tenfold. But uh, the risk among uh, vaccinated, not boosted, was still it wasn't super high, but it was definitely twice as high for that group compared to the vaccinated and boosted people. And we know data from the past, not with Omicron, but with the past strains, that people who are infected and boosted actually have the best protection than people who are vaccinated and boosted or vaccinated and infected without a booster. I think the, for me, the compelling thing is that BA5 is remaining the rule of the roost right now. So if you get a pi or rho or sigma, the rules might change. But I agree with everything that Mike and Bonnie have said about people who are infected, uh, you know, in the community and when they should get their booster shot. What's uh, what's your, uh, your sense, your plural sense of um, of the interest so far in, I know it's early, uh, but are people really eager to have the bivalent or are people kind of over this and not uh, not all that excited? 
I think it's I think it's local um, here, for example, here in the San Francisco area, at least in the area where I am, I've been looking on Nextdoor and a lot of the local apps. And uh, I've noticed that the, a lot of people are saying that they're out of boosters where they go into CVS, Walgreens, wherever they're going, that they're out of boosters. So there, I think it's going to be a regional response. I don't know what the others think. Yeah, I agree. And and it's a little bit skewed for us, I think, because the most common question I'm getting about phone blows up with text. Should I get it? Should I get it now? Well, that's yeah, yeah. that's like 30 percent of the population who are really hypervigilant. So like what you are, Paul, you went to Safeway yeah. right away and got it. Um, but I think for about a third of the population, they're just not going to embrace it quickly. Uh, so it's kind of a spectrum. It's not just regional. Even within a region, there's going to be early adopters and people that are very cautious about not wanting to get COVID and others who are either more cavalier or actually anti-vax. Well, one thing we did notice this year, we had a webinar for this for pediatricians because we noticed there was a steep decline last year in the number of families who were vaccinated against flu. Um, and so that's a, a could be maybe a, 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 a you know a harbinger of what might happen. So really trying to emphasize this year to make sure you get both because last year we did see a dip. We also saw nationally a dip in overall immunizations. So that's a concern. I think what is also driving a little more tepid response in parts of the country is the fact that the numbers are going down with hospitalizations, cases, and deaths. Well, deaths are still sort of like stable, bad. But um, the, I, and what we've seen in other surges is that people, even in, in low uptake states, they kind of get more, people rush on get it when there's more circulating in the community. So I wonder with a late fall, maybe early winter surge that that would may drive some folks to run out and, and get it then. So uh, a question from uh, one of the participants uh, in the in the panel discussion today is uh, goes to a thing that's been um, you know quite political, but it's been it's been certainly talked about a lot. Um, the fact that this bivalent vaccine was approved uh, in the absence of uh, the kind of prospective trials that we might otherwise see um, is that is that a subject for concern? Is that, are we going to see the clinical data soon with this? Are those trials organized or are we just waiting for clinical experience? Anyone have a sense of that? Well, I was, um, you know, part of the ACIP review and, the, you know, the existential issue here is that this, there's a real, as we mentioned before, there's a precedent for doing this with flu. We do this every year with flu. We don't do clinical trials for every year's flu vaccine because the platforms are the same. Um, and I know that when we talked to Peter Marks from CD, uh, from FDA uh, you know, a year and a half ago, we asked him, how are you going to start approving new vaccines when they come along? And he said, we're going to use the flu model. And it, it's a very tried and true model. Now, uh, of course, from one year to the next, with the flu, as you know, you don't know whether the antigen is gonna work, but you're not gonna know that by doing clinical trials either because you won't have enough people in a clinical trial to calculate vaccine effectiveness. So uh, the safety issues, as Peter mentioned, are the same. And we assume that with the same platform, you, switching out the antigens, um, they, there should be a equivalent response. Now, whether or not those antigens stimulate the same kind of immune response will be specific to the virus itself. So I have no idea what this means, if anything, uh, but I've noticed myself that uh, every time I'm, I'm getting boosted, um, I have really less of a reaction. This last one, I think it was a remarkable age, like I didn't know that I'd been, been boosted. I, and, and I wonder if that reflects the, the kind of the uh, acclimation of my immune system uh, to the antigens here. Um, but, so I'm interested in, in that, but also a question comes in, um, that the CDC for people that are previously unvaccinated are still recommending the old uh, two-dose um, uh, ancestral vaccine before you get the BA5. Uh, is there a reason for that, or should people just start with the BA5 uh, bivalent? Um, thoughts? It, it flips back to your previous question. So for the initial series, we have enormous amounts of data, both safety and efficacy, and we don't have any data, zero, on 
using the BA5 bivalent as an initial challenge. Now, we could all argue that, yeah, it should work, but we don't really know what is going to be the safety in that setting. And it goes back to the, your original question, which I would say, it's real easy to raise criticism and say, well, we don't have data for the booster use of the variant vaccine, bivalent vaccine, but it's not a yes, no, it's a comparison. It's what's the relative risk of a bad thing happening, getting that vaccine versus the protection that you're going to get at flipping it around, the bad things that can happen by getting Omicron because you're not fully protected. And I think the ways that weighs fully in the area of going ahead and getting the vaccine, because it's highly unlikely in the setting of boosting that you're going to get a bad reaction. But in the case of just nobody having, of someone not having any immunity, I think that may be more of a stretch. So go ahead and get the regular one and then boost later with the bivalent. So uh, one of the things that I'd like us to uh, toss around a little bit today is um, kind of where are we in the in the COVID pandemic? Um, is it becoming like the flu? You know, I, I've been starting to travel again and people are not, not masking. Um, people seem to be pretty unconcerned. Um, tell me and uh, the, the, the participants today about the current status of death rates from COVID versus current death rates uh, from flu. Um, uh, is, is COVID something that we should, in our minds, relegate to wherever we put flu, which is probably not right at the front of our, of our minds anymore? Uh, thoughts about that, that direction? Yeah, um, so I, let me start with the epi epidemiology, and I'm sure you know we'll hear from Michael and uh, Peter, but if you think about where we are now compared to March of 2020, we remember we had zero immunity in the community for this virus. Um, and, uh, and so, and we had no interventions other than non-pharmacological interventions. Today we have, I would say 80% plus or more of people have immunity in some form, either from infection or from uh, vaccination or both. And so your degree of circulation, your, your effective R naught is really, really low. Uh, and uh, the risk of getting infected is gonna be low. And we can, I'll let Peter and Michael talk about case numbers, but um, we're seeing that the community is more protected. Those individuals at higher risk are more protected at this point. It doesn't mean that we're not gonna see cases. We're continuing to see cases. Um, there are hospitalizations. I know, I'm sure at UCSF at Stanford, we, we haven't stopped admitting patients. They're less likely to be in the ICU, but they're, uh, the numbers are down. I think some of that is also related to how well we're caring for people um, and antivirals and other uh, methods. So I think um, we can be at this point with a big, big caveat heading into a period where we will see some low level circulation and people who aren't protected or who at higher risk um, uh, are going to be um, at risk for poor immune responses. Uh, maybe at risk for disease, but at, at this point, most people are well protected. And this is a public health issue because those of us who have been vaccinated are protecting those people who haven't just have still not decided to get vaccinated. And that'll keep them safe and healthy for a period of time. And I think Michael alluded to this, but we don't know what that means, right? So we think we're okay for now. Another variant, we never knew why Delta showed up. We never did. Um, and so, or Omicron. So, um, well, we knew more about Delta, but Omicron really came out of nowhere. So the question is, will that happen again? We know it happens for flu. It only happens, you know, four times a century uh, for flu, luckily. Uh, but when it does, it's pretty devastating. So we, we don't know whether we'll turn to flu in that respect or whether this will just mutate off into a a common cold, and, and that may be the scenario, but it may not happen for another, you know, five, 10, 20 years, we don't know. I may be distracted, Bonnie, but there's somebody at my door. Oh. <laughs> I, have to, I have to let in, so. Oh, sure. Uh, you guys just keep keep yeah. talking among yourselves. I'll be back as soon as I can. <laughs> well, I, I was gonna pick up, Bonnie, where you left off, and that there's still uh, around 450 to 500 deaths a day a day in the United States. And that's kind of hard to comprehend and a whole lot better than what it was, but that's a lot worse than we see during the flu epidemic. So I think we're still worse with COVID. 
It is important to say, though, that at least based on the data from New York Times, the death rate is sixfold, six times higher among unvaccinated people than vaccinated people. And the people who are dying, who are vaccinated that have COVID, oftentimes it's with COVID and not from COVID. So I think there's a lot of nuance there, but we're not out of the woods yet. And, and I'll see what Peter thinks about, um, you know, the, again, coming back to these variants. Uh, I, I don't, like you said, I don't know where they came from, but for sure the summer of 21 caught everyone by surprise with Delta. And it was that, it was that huge outbreak um, on uh, Cape Cod uh, that 75% of the people who got it were vaccinated. And it's not because the vaccine didn't work totally, it was that it didn't work against the Delta variant. It was working fine. It's kind of where we are right now. And unless there's another variant that comes in, um, if, if none comes then I think we're doing well, but if another one comes in, we're back to square one perhaps, at least in terms of a new spike. And just to pick up on what Mike was saying, you know, I looked at the New York Times uh, daily deaths and it's 470 uh, today. It's been kind of like between 400 and 500 a day consistently. When you multiply that by 365, it's 170,000 people and an average flu season is about 35,000. So there are projections that we may settle down even with endemic to at least 100,000. Some people are more pessimistic saying it's 200,000, but think about that. I mean, that's a new thing on our landscape uh, that wasn't there before in 2019. And it's going to exceed a number of deaths, just put it in scale to diabetes deaths per year. So I'm back. Thanks, guys. <laughs> so um, an, another kind of uh, a question that in that area is, you know, we're, we're quite used to uh, flu. We're, you know, the flu vaccine, we're used to getting an annual dose and we're used to it being adjusted a little bit depending on what the, uh, what the uh, expected uh, dominant strain is that year. Um, are we going to get there with flu and COVID? Are we going to get to a point of, you know, an annual flu plus COVID vaccination? How soon do you think that's going to happen if you do? So what do you think? Peter, you're nodding. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I think we hope we get to more regular period than every randomly four months, five months, six months, whatever. Um, the math is really tough. And if you just get it down to once a year, in fact, the Biden administration last week, we're trying to communicate aspirationally that if we get to once a year thing, I think it's more palatable to your average person because then people are like, well, what's the point? I'm just going to wing it, um, which is not what we'd like. But it all depends on what happens on the landscape with variants, how different they are, if they have a huge evolutionary change from Omicron. But picking up what Mike and Bonnie have said earlier, we haven't really seen, Omicron has been like the longest thing we've seen so far since Thanksgiving of last year in South Africa to now flavors of Omicron, but it's still Omicron. It's just so good that it's probably, it may hopefully stay rule of the roost and then we wouldn't have to deal with something else. There is talk that if something new would happen, maybe the groups that may get an earlier booster would be immune compromised and, and older folks. But I'm hoping and crossing fingers that it settles down to once yearly because you know, nobody can keep up with this uh, roundabout sort of like merry-go-round of boosters. Well, so, so the one thing about, so one thing I worry about is we, I think one of the fundamental reasons why we can vaccinate once a year with flu is because it's a seasonal virus. Yeah. And we don't have a season yet for, um, uh, for uh, COVID, uh, for SARS-CoV-2. It needs to settle, I hope, into a seasonal pattern because all of coronaviruses do, but this one has not had that opportunity yet. And I, I do worry a little bit about uh, promising a yearly uh, booster until it settles into a yep. seasonal pattern, but um, because we still know how quickly our antibody responses drop off, and the question still around how protective are is immunity uh, T cell uh, enhanced immunity, and I think that may help carry some of the severity away. Um, but if if it's it becomes seasonal, then I would make a stronger argument for an annual booster. So uh, so one of the questions that I see on the on the on the Q and A. Um, 
I think we can deal with very quickly, but but let's let's mention it. Uh, choice between, let's say, COVID and or between uh, Pfizer and Moderna. Um, stay with one, mix and match. And I know we've talked about this before, but any final um, ruminations about, about that? Bottom line, I don't think it matters a whole lot. Got, got it. So, yeah, like I tell people, your body doesn't know what brand of vaccine you're yeah, using. Yeah, it's like what brand of car you're in, I guess. Uh, so, um, uh, before we before we uh, we certainly want to get to mpox and and, uh, and polio and the other viruses that are out there, uh, but. Um, uh, we'd heard a lot for a while about treatment trials, uh, treatments uh, with with uh, COVID. Um, obviously, for a lot of reasons, uh, much less uh, discussion now. Anything we should be watching in terms of treatment trials that are ongoing that uh, that the people on the on the call today are likely to hear about coming soon, or is that is that just now dead in the water? Well, there are still, you know, uh, Paul, you and I are on a DSMB, so we have some protected information. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think there are obviously trials. People are, I think we still need to understand the dynamics of these antivirals. So, um, you know, there are great uh, in vitro studies that show some of these work, and then you do clinical trials, which, by the way, as you all know, are very hard to do. Um, enrolling the right people, getting them in uh, when they're infected and they can't travel. So just the logistics of doing these trials is much more difficult than doing a vaccine trial where you have healthy uninfected people who you can vaccinate in large numbers. So the, just the, the speed and the scope of these studies is much more difficult, um, but uh, we still don't really get a, have a good sense of how some of these drugs work. And that would, because in theory, they there should be working. So for example, the um, the protease inhibitors should work really well, and they haven't really done that great a job. So, and that's been true for antivirals in general. There aren't very many good antivirals out there for any disease except for HIV, really. I mean, I think you can argue that herpes yep, yep. simplex, et cetera. So this is an area that we just don't have a good handle on. And I think this is, if you wanna prepare for the next pandemic, I would argue that we need to put more interest in understanding prototypic antiviral responses for different categories of viruses, um, not specific ones, because we don't know what's coming, but understanding right. double-stranded DNA viruses, single-stranded RNAs, and how do we, uh, how do these antivirals work uh, in vitro, and then maybe even in vivo for benign viruses, so we can have something available. But right. the point, there are trials, but nothing that's, I think, at this point, that may change the landscape, other than maybe ease of administration. I don't know if Peter and Michael have other thoughts. Yeah, so I mean, I think there's some trials of that people might have heard about of the current stuff, like longer courses of Paxlovid. I think everybody's really eagerly awaiting those kinds of studies. Um, mucosal vaccines, uh, um, vaccines given in needleless ways. Uh, so kind of like the same things that we have, but in different administration strategies. And then in therapeutics, uh, not so much uh, new and the, um, close on the horizon. There's some recently approved um, biologics. Um, uh, one was a, a cancer antiproliferative um, that got some attention, but kind of like faded off a little bit. And another one in the same anti-inflammatory box. Uh, so that's kind of what, uh, and then of course, everybody's trying to still work on the universal COVID vaccine. Um, uh, and low-cost vaccines for the rest yeah, of the yeah. country that like Peter Hotez and others are working on. So I'm um, aware um, and certainly looking at the at the questions from the from the group today uh, that there still is a lot of interest in MPOX um, and uh, especially in the participants that that are doing a lot of HIV care because of the overlap between those. Um, Peter, maybe uh, you want to start us to sort of give us a better sense. Uh, my sense is that the numbers are down, but tell it, tell us about that. Yes. Yeah, so on the surface, it looks all dandy. The numbers are down, um, but they're not gone away. And um, it's probably because of three things. Um, one is people who are the highest risk got it. So then they, uh, you can't 
it was such a high inoculum that they were going to be protected for a while. We don't know how long, maybe lifelong, maybe lifelong for disseminated, maybe a shorter time for local. Um, the jury's still out. Number two, uh, vaccines have gotten out. Uh, and then number three, interestingly, behavior change. We saw that in HIV. I thought it was fascinating to see that in MPOX as well, where 50% of MSM uh, reduce sexual partners. They reduce uh, congregating in common spots and using apps. Uh, so that that was really striking. So that dealt that if that behavior change reverses and there are pride events like Southern decadence and all these other things happening, you can imagine that because there's still virus around that that could boost. Uh, also, a lot of the decreases really because most of the numbers were in Europe, New York, LA, San Francisco. And if those people have gone on, still doesn't real mean that the distributed um, you know, effect is really down everywhere universally. And of course, uh, there are disparities and we have to get to the part of that. And it's very, very complex. Um, again, like HIV, very similar numbers going down. But if you look at African-Americans and Latinx, it's not the same. I still think we need to understand that a little bit more. So that's kind I of was, like- I, Yeah, I was, gonna, I was gonna ask somebody to talk about that because the numbers uh, sound pretty uh, pretty bad um, in terms of the racial uh, ethnic yeah. uh, disparities with this. Um, so I'm on the, uh, there's a White House, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, there's a White House monkey pie. In fact, there's a meeting tomorrow morning. So I was hoping to have that before today's talk, but uh, they have been, the, the White House um, task force on COVID actually has spun, spun off a group uh, that does a Chatham House style monkeypox advisory on a regular basis every week or two weeks. And um, this has been brought up, uh, you know, overall about this emphasis. If you look at the data on the CDC website, any of the websites, it's really striking. Uh, let me just back up to what Peter said, because I actually agree about the HIV issue. This is HIV on 78 RPM, for those of you who know what that means. Th so the latent period is so short that we are seeing what could have happened with HIV, and we have been able to respond much better. But what's happening again, similar to the HIV epidemic, the more educated, higher SES groups are really doing a lot of harm reduction. We don't know that for sure. The models indicate that. Uh, but in areas that are not as likely to have vaccine and presumably have harm reduction in place, the numbers are going up slightly, whereas the numbers in California, New York, et cetera, are coming down dramatically. So um, this is a real problem. Uh, the numbers in non uh, non uh, in non his in uh, black and African American uh, black African American Latinx populations are uh, the majority. They're the two thirds of the cases now are in that group. Those groups and these are groups that are less likely, as Peter has said so often, and Michael too. These are groups that are not going to come forward um, easily. Of bringing uh, education to their communities to their events has been a real focus at the White House level. Um, in funding, but the question is how easily will people adapt to this? So this really re requires a lot of more of that, you know, um, uh, community-based uh, work that we know so well from HIV um, interventions. So Mike, uh, what are you seeing in, in Birmingham? I assume that, that you're seeing that uh, the effects of that. Yeah, we're, we're seeing that our, out of our clinic, which is about 3,500 people, maybe a case a day, um, it varies day to day, but a lot. But I, I want to sort of give a tip of the hat uh, to the public health system. It got a slow start for sure, but the vaccine is now at least readily available. We're not, we're not only uh, getting the at-risk population vaccinated, um, we're getting healthcare workers vaccinated, and there's uh, still supply to where they're asking for people who want it to come in now. Um, secondly, We've got uh, TPOX available for every patient. We're treating everyone, especially in the HIV population. And I know there's some questions in the queue, so I won't go on for long about this, but it, it really works quite well. But on the flip side, uh, as we say in the South, uh, patients are suffering mightily from this. I mean, they're, it, it's painful, and especially in the anal genital regions and, and the skin, everything, not to mention the stigma, and it's not just stigma internalized. There's actually overt stigma, even among um, uh, the, the MSM population, because nobody wants 
to be around someone who's got monkeypox. So a lot of isolation, a lot of psychological suffering that's going on. So there are questions um, about the timing of vaccinations with with monkeypox and COVID. Uh, does someone uh, want to kind of start talking a little bit about the uh, issues facing us with vaccination uh, with uh, uh, for mpox um, and some of the some of the challenges that we face, uh, Bonnie. Sorry about that. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Man. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think what CDC is recommending right now is that uh, you know you can get COVID, monkeypox, and flu vaccines all at the same time. There's no reason to suspect that um, they should not work um, together. And we fought uh, to make sure that COVID could be co-administered with other vaccines. And there's no, again, we give multiple antigens to children all the time. Uh, as routine. And so there's no reason to worry about that. I think there are some new data. Um, I think it's from the Netherlands looking at immune responses. Peter, we heard about that data um, from the state health department the other night. And it does indicate that um, that uh, there is a difference actually in ages, age groups. So if people have gotten smallpox vaccine, it turns out that you may actually have a better response to uh, monkeypox vaccine. Now, remember you have to be older than 60, I think, to have had exposure to smallpox vaccine, but it does point out to kinetics of immune response and the antibody response is reasonable. It's not super robust, but it's reasonable in those people who've never been exposed to smallpox vaccine. Um, and it, it seems to, you know, we don't have enough data yet, but it looks like it does last a reasonable amount of time. And again, people are assuming a protective level, a tighter based on previous studies with the Genios vaccine against um, in vitro uh, 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 assays. So, so it looks reasonable um, to give them together. It looks reasonable to expect that these vaccines are going to be um, uh, helpful. But one of the areas, and I, I know Peter and Michael will weigh in on this, is the question about, and maybe you all can say this, we get a lot of questions about, I got one dose. Is, is one dose good enough for me to go back to my activities and um, I'll let Peter um, talk and Michael talk about that because that's a common, common question right now. So, so I'd like that I'd like to hear from them. And also um, a, a question about uh, the protective effects of natural infection or of pre previous infection from MPOX. Is that uh, as good as vaccine? Uh, any thoughts on these issues, Mike? Well, you know, I don't actually know for sure what that is, but my guess is that it's fairly protective. We, we know that from other pox viruses that, that you do have pretty long lasting immunity. We see that with smallpox uh, just from the vaccine. And so um, one of the things that I think one of the questions was about was if you have a patient who's had monkeypox, do you then vaccinate them? If so, how long after? I don't know the answer to that question. Um, but, but my sense is that it's probably not a bad idea, but I'd wait again, like we talked about earlier, two to three months. That being said, it may be totally unnecessary. and We don't have the data yet to really guide us on that, but just uh, unless you guys have other information. So Peter, thoughts? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think with some, some patients, um, you know, in the beginning when vaccines were scarce, I reassure them that if you got infected naturally, you're going, like Mike saying, said, uh, you're probably going to be very protected for a long time, but not with more increase availability of vaccines, you know, if people wanted to go and get it and think of it as a booster, um, you know, a Why few not? months, yeah. eight, three yeah. months, we don't know the exact time, but probably at least a month. Um, it, it's not a bad idea, it wouldn't harm you. I think the other thing that, you know, when Bonnie and I are on these scientific calls to the state, one person who's been vocal about setting expectations about the vaccine and is this investigator who's amazing called Anne Remian from UCLA, who spent a whole life with uh, MPOX in the Congo. And she's saying that this inoculum of viruses so much with this current outbreak that you may not prevent local disease, uh, even with the vaccines. And it's important to realize that, but you likely prevent disseminated disease with all this painful lesion. So 
it may be that you may settle down with a high inoculum with a future contact to having something mild and local, which I've heard anecdotally is happening already, but not very common. Uh, but you're not probably going to get it spreading all over the body uh, with a vaccine. But that, and let me just mention that that's important. Again, we have to be careful how we word that as breakthrough and not breakthrough because that's not a breakthrough. So that's called force of infection, right? If you have a huge exposure, you can override some uh, vaccine immune response or any vaccine, any immune response. And these are fairly intense exposures compared to what we saw with previous uh, previous outbreaks, and especially um, in, for example, the, the Midwestern outbreak where you didn't have that such intense continuous exposure. So those are not really uh, ineffective vaccines. Really the idea there is you're reducing the, the symptomatic phase and that's true for just about every vaccine. Very few vaccines actually induce sterilizing immunity. So, um, so people will, so the point here I think is harm reduction is still really important in addition to vaccination. So why why is the disease relatively localized? Um, is why why don't we see more dissemination of the of the lesions? Is there um, do we know anything about that? What? I guess not. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's I don't know, Michael. What do you think? I mean, it doesn't look like the clade one and clade two activity from Africa for sure. And maybe because of the site of exposure and maybe auto inoculation, but it's all pre we all presume that we don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think you can put together almost everything we just said, and that is that the primary exposure may well be through uh, sexual activity, and therefore, uh, example, the, the anal genital um, uh, lesions are the first to come up, perhaps because of an inoculum effect, and whether or not it disseminates has a lot to do with inoculum maybe some pre-existing immunity or uh, the ability of the immune system to prevent that or not. And so it, it's really hard to say. We got to remember we're what, five months into this epidemic and we're getting asked all the right questions, but there just is enough experience and right, prior right. monkeypox experience isn't as directly relatable because this is truly a different variant. Yeah, yeah. Than what we've seen in, in the you know decades before when animals handlers had gotten monkeypox and it's different. So I raised the issue of dissemination, but um, we've heard I think just rare cases of very serious disease. I think last time we talked, we talked about meningitis or. Uh, and deaths, we, I, I, are deaths still so uncommon that we're going to kind of hear them in the news? Well, so it turns out that we know that uh, actually there are neurologic uh, impacts of even of the other clades in the past. We just don't see them in the, you know, we didn't know about them because this is a, uh, you know, not something that we see other than in uh, the, you know, parts of Africa. But it is known that there are neurologic complications. There can be um, seizures, encephalitis, other manifestations. And we are getting anecdotal reports. Peter has heard this as well in, uh, in our meetings that we've been going to about what may be uh, uh, epi, uh, uh, like ADEM, for example, and other phenomena that are not related directly to infection. But there are, uh, I read a case report of patients who've had a case reports of patients who've had what looks like a acute disseminated encephalomyelitis um, or, you know, para-immunologic responses, for example. So this can happen with other diseases. Well, they're, I, I suspect they're nonspecific, but again, as Michael said, this is so new to us. But we've, as far as I know, we've only had two deaths in the United States and the details of those are not very clear. Yeah. So yes. um, I, I, this is... Uh, all incredibly interesting, and there are a lot of questions. Um, and I, but I do want to get to some of the other viruses that that consume us. Uh, but maybe just one uh, quick response to a to a question from a, a panelist saying that she's noticed that um, people sometimes have dark uh, pigmentation at the sites of vaccine. Is that something that you've seen? Uh, and she says maybe maybe it might be a barrier to people getting vaccinated. Uh, have, is, have you seen that um, or heard about it? I've heard anecdotally of people and I've seen pictures of people with the intradermal uh, administration having more skin reactions, which is what we expected. Um, and I think a lot of people, some of the people were worried that it was, you know, viral infection. So it was reassuring that and they could put steroids or Benadryl and it actually went away. So 
I think that is what I'm seeing more of or hearing more about from people since intradermal. But again, I'm not, I haven't heard of permanent scarring or anything like that. Okay, good, good. Uh, we've been tossing around flu issues, but let me just ask whether, uh, what do we know about this year's uh, flu vaccine? Is it, I think last year's was pretty horrible um, in terms of uh, potency. Um, what do we know about the strain this year, and are we expecting to see an mRNA uh, flu vaccine develop soon? Um, anybody? Well, the strains this year were selected based on what happened in southern the southern hemisphere, so they did switch out a couple of the strains. Um, but as you all know, effectiveness is never um, a sure bet. Um, last year, we had about 30% effectiveness. Interestingly enough, Across the board for the last few years, we've seen better effectiveness in children for some reason, not in adults. Um, the current vaccine um, is, uh, you know, it, it, it's just really reflective of what, what was circulating in the Southern hemisphere. Um, the other issue that I think we like to talk about with flu is that there are more and more accumulating data, or actually the data are not that new, but the CDC is much more, um, focused on making sure that adults don't get early vaccination or at least encouraging people to wait a little bit because there are data on effectiveness waning um, if you uh, if you get your vaccine too early in the season. But it's a it's a real problem because we don't know when the season's going to start, right? So, so I should place, not have got, had my uh, safe way. Well, it's hard to know because, yeah. Uh, yeah, because the data are reasonably compelling, but they're not overwhelming. And, and they definitely have no data for children. So I really, we've, for pediatrics, we've resisted that re recommendation. And what if you have an early flu season, you might actually get infected. So um, people have suggested boosters, but yeah. you know we don't want another booster. We don't have the supply, first of all. So I would say, you know, in California, for example, um, our season is later. We generally don't start until January, February. So, um, but but the data on age and uh, timing is reasonable, but it's not overly robust. So I would say keep that in mind if you're concerned, and maybe wait till October, November. But I don't, I don't, I'm not a, a big fan of that one. I don't know, Michael or Peter, well, what you think? That's what I've recommended locally for years, for the reasons that you said that the immunity tends to wane, and the flu season usually hits here a little bit later. But I think, like if you said from Australia this year, uh, it hit early and pretty hard. So we don't know. But to your second part of your question, absolutely, there's going the mRNA platform is going to be explored for all kinds of vaccines, and maybe we could start thinking about a universal vaccine. It just opens up an incredible new horizon for vaccination that we're just going to begin to see tapped. And so I expect that uh, down the road. Yeah, those trials, those trials just started this week. The yeah. mRNA flu trials just started this week. I don't, I think it's 25,000 patients. I'm not sure. I just have two pearls to add about the flu vaccine. The first is that over 65, and Bonnie and Mike, Michael know this, um, there are new, there are actually absolute recommendations now for a different vaccination in uh, older adults, um, either a higher dose or one with a, a revamped adjuvant so that's like the one thing but if again convenience trumps everything so if the only vaccine the person has in in locally is not that just go ahead and get it the second thing and i'll be interested to know what bonnie thinks about this is that the only sort of like pop, one of the other populations apart from kids that uh is pregnant persons right who are might be in third trimester you would you don't you would you wouldn't want to wait on that because of the effects on the, the transplacental transference of antibodies. Yeah, so women, pregnant women have higher morbidity and mortality rates, especially morbidity. So I agree, get them vaccinated when they need to get vaccinated as, as soon as they can. Um, and, and also there is evidence of transplacental protection, but really it's for the pregnant woman as well as the child. Um, so yeah, I, I wouldn't wait for that group. Let's and as you know, there are so the the adjuvanted vaccines are they are plentiful now. So for yeah. people, especially sixty five and older, we should really be getting the adjuvanted vaccines. Let's spend just two minutes or less on uh, on diagnosis and treatment of flu. Uh, what is there anything new on the horizon? Uh, how should docs be 
um, be diagnosing suspected flu. Do you want to remind us? Somebody, Mike. Yeah, so the, the diagnosis is still uh, pretty much the same. Now we have these viral respiratory panels that are really pretty good. And you get more than just somebody comes with a flu-like illness. It's important to distinguish because you're coming to treatment that if it is for sure uh, influenza, then the oseltamivir or Tamiflu can work really well or the, the other antiviral agents. So then you want to use those as early as possible especially in the first 24 hours, if you can, in 48 for sure. So that is all the same. But the, I think the viral respiratory panels, uh, it do take sometimes up to 24 hours to return, but they're game changers in terms of giving us more uh, knowledge of what to do, and especially in the hospital. We do use that a lot. And of course, watching for COVID. The thing also to keep in mind is a co-infection that, that we've seen every now and then of COVID and influenza um, it's not common, but, but you need to uh, kind of be mindful of that. One of the questions we get quite a bit in, in, in the pediatric setting, I imagine in the general care setting as well, is people, uh, some of, there are times when people don't like the idea of treating flu uh, because they say, well, what's the, uh, why would it make a difference? People, do we really need it? The data have not been as robust as we'd like, but we know that uh, oseltamivir does there are data that suggest it will reduce the risk of hospitalization and death. It's hard to do the death uh, effectiveness studies because you'd have to really uh, survey large, oh, large numbers. So large number, yeah. But yeah. it is still something that we would recommend. And absolutely, the other thing to re recall is that if you are infected or somebody you know is infected, the partner, the household partner should be prophylaxed. And actually that is quite effective. Right. Well. We're running low on time, and I, I expect maybe we'll have occasion to come back to flu uh, uh, in future uh, in future dialogues, given the season that we're that we're entering. Uh, we ha we haven't mentioned HIV, which we don't have to, uh, but let's let's at least mention polio. Um, uh, not a, not a lot more, and I, I haven't heard of any uh, more paralytic cases. But is there anything new we should be telling people about polio? Well, so yes, this uh, last week, the New York state declared a state of emergency, and that is not to alarm people, but really to provide resources, because the areas where the one paralytic case occurred um, has a very, very low immunization rate in children, and that is going to be the risk for continued circulation. In fact, they've now started finding uh, uh, dozens of uh, positive environmental samples, so we knew that would happen. It's going to be present throughout uh, the area because polio is incredibly transmissible. If you are vaccinated, you are essentially protected for life. So there's nothing to worry about if a person's vaccinated. But the question really has been: I mean, I've been getting emails from people who said, "I'm going to New York. Should I get my Should I get a polio vaccine?" I said, "No. You know, it's really transmitted by contaminated sewage or water, and that's not the case in New York." or somebody who you know who is infected, but most people who are infected don't know they're infected because they're vaccinated and asymptomatic. So I would just say, make sure your uh, vaccine records are up to date. And generally, if you're not gonna go to a low vaccination place, and we know which counties those are, um, you're, you're, you're uh, gonna be okay. So this really is just a reminder that we need to make sure people stay up to date on general vaccines because where only those vaccines uh, are protect those vaccines protect us from these massive outbreaks. And by the way, we are now a WHO designated uh, country that circulates virus along with Somalia and Yemen. So we're in really good company with com countries so that much, have right, no right. resources. Yeah. Yeah, well, I would uh, say that the only other thing to amplify, Bonnie, is that we have five counties now in New York uh, State with detectable polio virus in the wastewater. So we are uh, basically out of time. I, I want to again thank the uh, panelists uh, for, as always, a great free-flowing uh, discussion. The questions from the from the group participating. We had a, a, a pushing on 300 people uh, on the dialogue today. So I think uh, the evidence of ongoing interest in th these uh, infections is, is still really strong. Um, Thank uh, each of you, uh, Peter, Bonnie, and Mike. Uh, thank uh, Donna and Jose again from the organization. Um, and we, just as a reminder, we have a number of other programs that uh, that we uh, that we organize. 
Uh, you can find out them from the uh, website that you see on your on your screen now. Uh, and uh, we really enjoy this, and I think we all learn from uh, from each other's experience. So uh, thanks very much. Bye bye.